Well, good morning, good morning. I hope you're doing well, whether today is uh, day number one for you. If you're our guest, thanks so much for being here. If you've been around for a long time, we're just as excited, right, that you are here. If you're watching online, tuning in with us today, you have joined us on a day where we're in week number five of a series called New, where we are looking at the revelation uh, of John, uh, the last book, uh, in fact, uh, of the scriptures. And as we have looked at this every week, we're considering this idea that the revelation is more about present hope. It's more about present day hope than it is about a future calendar, right? It is meant to uh, comfort us and to confront us, not to confuse us. And I think for many of us, um, revelation has always been relegated to, uh, to predictive prophecy, right? And by and large, um, what's been taught in churches over the last 20 to 30 years, virtually all of the predictions that have been made about the future out of the book of Revelation have proven to be incorrect um, over time. So we're looking at what do the original hearers say and not just, not just, you know, some prophecy out there. For example, if you were to prophesy uh, that the Browns were going to beat the Bengals today at one o'clock, much like all of the messages that we've heard about Revelation over the years, you would be wrong because the Bengals uh, were going to win that game. Um, so you think, about, um, you think about the word revelation, just by way of reminder, it's the Greek word apocalypsis, right, where we get our word apocalypse. And apocalyptic literature is a very specific type of, of literature. So think about for a second, like when you walk into Barnes & Noble, right? Two major categories in Barnes & Noble, right? Fiction, nonfiction. So we would look at the Bible in that way, and we would say, okay, you have to determine what do you believe about the Bible, fiction or nonfiction? And we believe the Bible is nonfiction, that all of the scripture is true. And yet, inside of one of those sides of Barnes & Noble, there are many, many smaller categories, right, of literature. You go in, there's history, there's sci-fi, there's children's, there's um, uh, mystery, there's current events, there's all of these different categories. And much like that in the Bible, um, there are different kinds of literature. There's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's history, there's law. And then here we see apocalyptic literature um, or prophecy. Now, when we think about apocalyptic literature, right, in our culture, we tend to think about fiction, right? We, th uh, we think about like, uh, like sci-fi, right? Like Star Wars, right? That's not what apocalyptic literature is like in the scriptures. Think about apocalyptic literature like a combination of history and mystery, those two things together. History, you look backwards at what has already happened. And there's so many Old Testament references in the Revelation because these seven churches of Asia Minor were mainly compromised of Hebrew believers, right? So they knew the Old Testament very well. So there's a lot of Old Testament references there per history, but then there's also mystery. In mystery, it's an investigation, not of just what has happened, but what will happen, the investigation, and you get clues along the way as to what will happen in the future. And at the end of the revelation, right, we know where we're heading. We know what the end, in a sense, of the book has to say to us. And we get clues along the way that point us. But these clues come to us in the way uh, of symbols. And that's why it's important for us to understand these symbols in relationship to first century uh, hearers and not just, and not just us. 
I was thinking this week, uh, growing up, uh, I rode mainly, uh, for most of my uh, elementary and middle school years, um, I rode bus number seven, uh, headed to Burlington Elementary and to South Point Middle School. And my bus driver growing up was a lady named Bunny Knight, right? Now, Bunny wasn't her real name. It was her nickname. And in fact, it was one of the worst nicknames in the history of nicknames, right? There was nothing bunny about her. I don't know where she got the nickname, right? But I remember getting onto her bus when I was in kindergarten, right? And I got onto her bus and she was, she was mean, right? Um, she, we would drive, she'd drive down the road, 45 miles an hour down a country road, never looking at the road, just staring at you in that mirror up above, right? and she would stare a hole right through you. And when she would yell, man, she sounded um, like the voice of, of many waters, right? Like she would yell, get in your seat, right? As she's driving down the road, not paying attention to the road, staring at you in the mirror. Now, what I didn't know, right, as a little kindergarten kid, is that for two hours a day, every day, she drove uh, 40 you know, kindergarten to middle school age kids who were unseat belted around in a big, huge uh, yellow, but that would make anybody mean, right? I mean, two hours a day, every day, that's what she, I saw her later on when I grew up one time. She came up and hugged me, asked me how I was, she was a beautiful person, right? But not for those two hours a day. And I was just thinking this week, if I were to, if I would have written this whenever, um, whenever I was in kindergarten or in first grade, if I would have described my experience on bus, number, on bus number seven, right? I would have written something like um, uh, the huge bunny with eyes of fire and the voice like a pack of hyenas. Let the reader understand that she drove the children mad with fear in the yellow number seven. Like it would have been all symbolic and you would not understand it, right? Because you would have have to been one of the original kids who was riding on that bus. And so today, as we jump into Revelation chapter six, we're gonna start getting into some of those symbols and we're gonna do our best to interpret those in the context of the original, uh, in the original hearers and what they would have known and understood. So what we're gonna look at today, we're gonna get uh, four horsemen, seven seals and one lamb. Four horsemen, seven seals, one lamb, okay? Jump into Revelation chapter six, and we'll start there in verse one. It says this, and I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now, Chad taught last week, if you were here, and the point that Chad left us is that the, uh, the lamb, right, was ready to open the scroll, right? He was the one who was found worthy uh, to open the scroll. But this scroll, what we're gonna learn today is sealed, right, with seven seals. And so we're going to do our best to open all seven uh, of the seals today. And the word, or excuse me, the number seven in Revelation is important. It's important in the whole Bible, right? It tends towards uh, completion. So what you're going to see as you read through Revelation, I hope you're doing that with us every day on the app, every day, come in, come out. Our Next Steps writing team has done a great job of devotionally walking us through Revelation. What we're going to see 
right? We're going to see there were seven churches in, in the beginning in Asia Minor that the letter went to, and then we're going to see seven seals, and eventually we're going to see seven trumpets. We're going to see seven bowls. That This whole idea makes sense because God is moving us towards the end of history, the completion, right? That number seven, the completion of his dream uh, for history. And so uh, here's what happens when the first seal is broken then in verse 2. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, there was before me a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and, a, and he rode out as a conqueror bent um, on conquest. Now, in verses 2 through 8 in Revelation 6, we are introduced to four horses and four horsemen. Right? There are uh, war, conquest, famine, and death. And those are the first four seals. Every time a seal is opened, one of these horsemen uh, is deployed. They're much like uh, rangers, right, that have been sent out to patrol the earth. Now, the original hearers, these original mainly Hebrew hearers, would have immediately thought, oh, yeah, 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 that's Zechariah chapter 1 in the Old Testament. Where in Zechariah 1, Zechariah is offering a prophecy to the, uh, the exiles who were getting to the end of the exile, the end of that 70 years. And he offered them in Zechariah chapter 1 this idea that there were horsemen that were riding from heaven throughout the earth. Similar names, similar. So the original hearers would have been, oh, okay, we see that. We see the prophecy of Zechariah playing out here. So when we think of what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we need to think about the reality that these horsemen, that they rode in the past, they ride in the present, and that they will ride again in the future. War, conquest, famine, and death. Those have been part of world history. They're part of world present. Tragically, that is a very normal day in world history today. Maybe not so much in our space, in our country, and where we live, but it's a very normal day, and it will continue into the future. But as these riders patrol the earth, that leads then to the breaking of the, of the fifth seal. So look down in verse 9. It says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they, had, that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge their blood? You know, the original hearers, um, they faced political persecution. They would have faced food insecurity because of the Roman Empire and because of their oversight and because of the persecution. They would have tried to withhold resources from the original uh, the original hearers. And so what they hear when the fifth seal is broken on this scroll is this question that comes. How long, oh sovereign Lord, how long until you bring justice? And for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about, how the justice of God works in the world. But it's also important to note that this is almost exactly the same question 
that is asked by the people of Zechariah's day back in the Old Testament, these exiles who were waiting to get back into Palestine, who had been overthrown by the Babylonians, who were then um, held underneath the Persian Empire's rule. They're asking virtually the same question. How long, God? How long do we have to wait? In other words, God, when is this going to get better? And by this, they mean their circumstances. And by better, they mean more comfortable. That makes this very applicable. This is a very applicable part of Revelation to your life and to my life. Generally speaking, the most difficult things that we face, the toughest of our circumstances, we can't change it. If we could change it, we would change it, right? But when we find ourselves asking this same question, how long, God, when is, when is this, whatever the this is in your life, when is this going to get any better? We generally cannot change those things. We can't control those things. But what we can do is control our response to those things. We can control not how we necessarily, how those things are going to act or how those things are going to play out. But what we can control is how we react in situations and circumstances like that. Because what we tend to want is a greater level of comfort. And I think that what John is pointing out to these original hearers, I think what John is, is trying to say to you and me is, hey, hey, this, remember back in the Old Testament? Because what you're asking, I know what you're asking for. The people, how long, Lord, the exiles? How long? Are we ever going to get back to the way that it was under David and under Solomon when we were a political power, when, when people's lives were uh, seemingly very normal and smooth and, and prosperous? Are we ever going to are we gonna get back to that? And I think John is reminding the people, let's remember back to that for a minute. Because back when you were very prosperous and when things went very well and everything was going smooth, or at least what we remember to be smooth in terms of your circumstances, those were the days that you actually rebelled against God. As a matter of fact, the reason that you're exiles right now, this is what Zechariah was saying to the people, the reason that you're in exile right now is because you took those circumstances for granted and because of your comfort, you had this propensity to rebel against God instead of leaning in towards God. Very applicable to you and me. Because the reality is, the more comfort I get, the more comfort... I expect. The more comfort I have, the more comfort that I tend to feel like I am, uh, that I'm entitled to, that God owes to me. And then the more things get um, out, of, uh, out of sync in my life, then I start asking the question, how long? And what's interesting about that is that discomfort has the tendency to turn me God's direction where comfort where comfort does not. This is also why, as we look at um, uh, the big C, church in America, the people who tend to stand out are people who choose Christ over comfort. You ever think about that? 
The people who look at life and it's like Christ greater than comfort in situations and scenarios tend to be the people that affect, that inspire change. Um, I had the privilege to go to China back in the early 2000s. And while we were there for, uh, I was there almost four weeks while we were there, we met with some underground church leaders. And these were folks who had been underground church leaders for a number of years. 1966, Mao Zedong, the gang of four, took over the, the red curtain of communism, dropped in China. And for basically 20 years, there was a rule and reign by Mao and the gang of four uh, there. And no one could really see anything behind that red curtain. But when the curtain started to lift, what we learned is that the Chinese Christians went through unbelievable, incredible, incredible persecution during those 20 years. And simultaneously, the church in China, that when the curtain fell, there was, generally speaking, there's estimated to be about 600,000 Christians. When the curtain started to raise, what we learned is that all of a sudden, now there are tens of millions of Christians in China. So in the midst of incredible persecution, actually the church grew and the church was thriving. You know, one of the underground church leaders that I talked to, he said that during those 20 years, um, for the church to meet covertly, what they had to do is they had to move the meeting all of the time. And the way that they moved the meeting effectively is that they had a person that they called the sounding board. And the sounding board was the person who um, took on the task of informing the members of the local church when and where the church would meet. Maybe um, they'd wear um, a special flower in their hair. These are men and women who um, would be in a certain place in the city. Maybe it was in a public place uh, like a park. Maybe it was in an alley. But people would know I have to go to them and I find out when and where the church would meet. Now, what's interesting is that inevitably, Local communist leaders would find out eventually who the sounding board was. And that person was generally executed publicly as an attempt to kind of stomp, to stamp out the movement of the church. And so I asked this leader, I said, well, how did you find people to become the sounding board person? How did you find men and women who would do that? And he said to me, we had a list. He said, in my community, we had a list of people over a hundred names long who were willing to be the sounding board. That was jarring to me. The people who choose Christ over comfort. I think about people maybe in our modern context, the different, different groups of people certainly, but I think a lot about um, our fostering families. I think about families who give up time and energy and resources to welcome a young person or young people into their homes voluntarily to uh, prayerfully breathe gospel life into them, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for a longer season, sometimes even in, uh, to an adoptive relationship um, into their family, right? They could do the more comfortable. And listen, this is, this is not a guilt trip. I don't think every family should foster. I don't think every family um, should adopt. But man, the level of admiration, right, for people who choose Christ over comfort. Our church, um, seven years ago, we took on the challenge of becoming part of a community of change in a place called Kikira, Uganda. And it has been an incredible, incredible blessing to us. 
that uh, we sponsor, the members of our church across all of our campuses, we sponsor or have sponsored over 100 children back into their extended families, orphans and vulnerable children, covering the cost for resources, sponsoring them back into their extended family for, for education, for physical health. And today we are taking another step um, in that process and, and partnership. Joseph Elotu um, is the national director uh, for Children's Hope Chest there in Uganda. And so via video, um, he is bringing us uh, greetings and going to give us some orientation to that new partnership. So if you would, watch, uh, watch the screens with me. My name is Joseph Elotu, and I work for Children's Hope Chest. I've been working for Children's Hope Chest in Uganda for the last 14 years as the country director. And I'm very pleased for one of the care points that we have, which is the Kakira. Kakira is a very vulnerable community. Many times our communities get so stuck into poverty, they get so stuck into vulnerability that they may not know exactly what they want to do. For our care point in uh, Kakira, we have a 15-year development plan. And this plan is designed into five-year segments. The initial stage of taking off is when we enter a community and then we focus on the survival, addressing the nutrition of the child, addressing the education of the child, mainly addressing survival of the child. Then in the leveling phases is where we've done, uh, we begin consolidating some of the activities that we've done in the first phase. We establish things like businesses that can be able to um, make the community prosper. And then on the part of descending down towards the landing, that is when Hopia starts withdrawing slowly and allowing the community to take an upper hand so that we achieve sustainability of the projects that have already been established in the phase. When we launched the care point in Kakira, uh, early 2017. We were mainly doing the sponsorship model whereby we took the pictures of the children, sent them over to the church at Life Point. They got printed and then people would go and pick the children that they wanted to sponsor. We've developed uh, a strategy where we give the children much more voice. So we are now doing uh, a friendship model whereby we have reversed the whole process. We have families that are willing to sponsor children. They sign and then their pictures are taken. And then these pictures are taken to Uganda. We hang them and then children come and pick the person they want to sponsor them. The children look at this that I have a friend. This friend is willing to walk with me this journey. And this friend is willing to take me to to make choices for some of the good things that are good for me. So it is a friendship, there is a relationship, and there is power in it. We want to thank LifePoint Church so much for their generosity, the generosity of the families that have come up to sponsor children, generosity of the families that have come up to sponsor the projects or give towards the projects that are being done. It's sometimes unfortunate that um, LifePoint is so far away just only a few people can, tra can travel there and be able to see the level of impact that this contribution is causing. But we want to thank you for the generosity. We want to thank you to respond to God's word and to respond to the needs of the people that um, we have 
in Kakira. May God bless you so much. May God continue richly blessing your families and may God continue ministering to each one of you even as you respond for this. Thank you for being the hands and the feet of God in what God is doing in Uganda. Yeah, you can clap for that. Thanks to those of you who over the past seven years have sponsored um, have sponsored a young person um, over there in the video. Um, you, you wouldn't have had any reason to notice this, but one of the children there, if you saw his name tag, it was Edrin. And Edrin is the young man that my family has had the privilege uh, of sponsoring over these last seven years. And my wife, Angie, and my daughter, Sylvia, had the opportunity to go on one of our mission trips to Uganda in February, and they got to see Edrin face-to-face and essentially spend a week with him doing ministry um, alongside of him. And so what, um, what the team at Children's Hope Chest has done is they have, um, they have given us the opportunity, another 100 children across all five, what will be six of our campuses starting next week um, to take on uh, to sponsor. This shift has occurred, you heard him say, from a sponsorship model to a friendship model. So we are going to provide, we're going to say to uh, the care point over there, hey, here's a group of however many people today uh, respond and um, we'll take your picture, we'll send them over there and instead of you choosing a child, the child is going to choose you. And so prayerfully today, I hope that you will consider taking a step if you're not currently Um, in a relationship internationally where you are blessing a child after the service is over today. If you go out into the lobby and turn left, right there by the missions wall, there'll be folks from our team who will answer any questions uh, that you have about taking the step and being part of our uh, partnership there in Kikira. Why do we do this? Because Revelation says there is a day coming and these seals are going to be broken. And until that sixth seal is broken, we know that these four riders, right, they're patrolling a world where because of sin, war and conquest and famine and death are at work. And we have the opportunity to do good. As a local small C church here at LifePoint, we have the opportunity to do good in a place halfway around the globe and to make a difference in the life of these young people as we have the chance to financially support them, to prayerfully support them, uh, to relationally support them through letters, through potentially going, sponsoring them back into their families and back into a local church family there in Kikir. I hope you'll take the opportunity, prayerfully consider that um, today. That leads then to the breaking uh, of the sixth seal in chapter six and verse 12. It says this, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake and the sun turned uh, black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The beginning uh, of of what happens when the sixth seal is is broken is uh, this kind of wave of supernatural, natural events um, that occur. And they lead down to chapter 6, verse 17, where the people cry out. They say, who is able to stand? And again, this harkens back to the day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2, in Isaiah chapter 2, in the Old Testament, where the people say something very similar to this in the midst of these natural, supernatural, presided over by God um, events. Who is able 
to stand. And that leads then to the answer that comes in chapter 7 and uh, in verse 4. It says this, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons uh, of Israel. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who these 144,000 are. There are other uh, religions, there are cults that are gathered around this idea right here, this, the interpretive idea. What would the original hearers um, have, have thought? Every tribe of Israel, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. I think the best interpretation is that this is a reference back to Numbers chapter 1 when there was a military census done and they went tribe by tribe by tribe by tribe. I think this is, a, this is a military census that's being taken. And what we're seeing here at the beginning of chapter 7 is very similar to what Chad talked to us about last week when John said, here's what I saw, or excuse me, here's what I heard. And then he turns and he says, and here's what I saw. And what he hears is different than what he turns to see. I heard this, but then I turned and saw a slain lamb. Here he says, I heard this this vast army, this 144,000 who are man of who are seemingly ready for battle. But then in verse 9 it says, and after this I looked or I turned, right? I turned and I saw what did he see? And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. So once again, John says, I hear these 144,000, but then I turn and what do I see? I see the lamb, right? I see the one that we worship, the one who is worthy to open the seals. And it's not just 144,000 now. Suddenly it's, it's a number that he says, you couldn't even number it. It goes from 144,000 to 144 million. Every tribe, every t- nation, every tongue of people gathered around the throne of God, no longer seemingly a military army because it says now they have palm branches in their hands preparing to worship, right, the the Lamb of God. And is this a big deal? Absolutely, it's a big deal because it's a reminder to you and me that Jesus did not start an ethnocentric ministry. He didn't start a church that was gathered around one group of people. It's every tribe, every nation, every tongue, right? And so as you and I think about our lives and the reality that all of us are flawed, all of us are bent towards ourselves, all of us are bent towards sin, all of us are bent towards our own families in some contexts, all of us are bent towards uh, people who have similar likes and interests that we do. We can easily become uh, bent towards people of our own uh, of our own ethnos, right? If we, are, uh, if we are prejudiced, if we struggle with racism, we are not going to enjoy heaven. Heaven is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-gender, eternal party for the glory of God, the slain lamb who is on his throne. 
And so we work through those things in our lives. We work through our imperfections. We work through difficult moments because what happens is these people go from, a, from an army of weapons or an army with weapons to all of a sudden an army with palm branches. These are not people who, uh, who conquer through the sense of conquering through a, a physical battle or conquest. These are people who conquer through faithfully serving the Lamb, through difficulty, through tough circumstances. And that leads us to the last of the seven seals that will be broken in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. This is the only time that I know of in Scripture where there is a vision of heaven and it's a silent vision. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand um, of the angel. There's this moment, there's this silence. John says for about a half an hour, as the angels gather up the prayers of this multitude, the prayers, the struggles, the fights, the battles, and heaven is silent while those prayers rise up in front of the Lamb. The prayers, not just that they offer, but that you and I offer, the prayers as we fight loneliness, the prayers as we fight Alzheimer's disease, the prayers as we fight addiction, the prayers as we fight cancer and Parkinson's and the death of a parent, the prayers as we fight the death of a child, the death of a loved one, the prayers as we fight things uh, like divorce and injustice, all of those prayers rise up like incense in front of God. And what I think John is emphasizing here is that God never misses a prayer. Not a single prayer. And I know there are times for you and me when we feel like, right, prayer makes it about to the ceiling, bounces down, comes right back up because we're not getting the answer, right, that we want. John is saying, no, 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 no. God never, he never ever misses a single prayer. That prayer, sometimes what we do is we relegate prayer as a discipline to the super Christians. You know, the people in Christian history like the David Brainerds who uh, went and ministered to the Seneca uh, Indians and the Delaware uh, Indians um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and he prayed so long and so hard in the snow that the snow melted around him and we think, I could never pray like that. And sure, there's a, there's a spiritual gifting wrapped around prayer, but prayer is also the privilege of all of us. And it is conversation. You don't have to know certain words. You don't have to know the right, there's not like phrases that unlock God doing what you want him to do. It is, is even, for, even for the people of scripture. I think about uh, Genesis uh, chapter 18. I think about Abraham. God reveals to Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sexual violence that has become uh, historically epic in that city. And God said, it's risen in front of me. It's risen in front of me. And I'm done. 
And Abraham has family members who live in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham says, wait, 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 God, you're, you, are, you are much too kind. What if there were 50 righteous people who live in Sodom and Gomorrah? What if there were 50? And God said, you know what? If there were 50, I, I wouldn't destroy the city. And Abraham's like, well, far be it from me, God, to push the envelope here. But what if there were 45? God said, you know, for 45, I, I, would, I could see it. I could, I could see the vision that you have, Abraham. And Abraham says, okay, God, I'm really sorry to even ask again. But what about, what about 40? And God says, oh, okay, okay, essentially. Oh, okay, for, for four. And he says, and what about 30? And what about 20? And what about 10? And God says, okay, if there's 10. And there's a, a historical theologian, his name's Walter Wink. And he writes this about that moment of prayer. He says, the moral of the story is that it pays to haggle with God. That biblical prayer is impertinent, persistent, Shameless. It's more like haggling in an oriental bazaar than the polite monologues of churches. And there are some times for you and me where in prayer, we just have to hang in there. I, I talked to a friend um, this week who just had a prayer answered, a two decades long prayer, 20 years plus. My friend has been praying this and God just answered that prayer. Prayer is this shameless conversation at times with God that happens in the context of a relationship, a relationship where we remain humble, right? And God remains the authority. And out of that, what we realize is that, that what prayer helps us do is it helps us align our hearts with God's heart. Prayer is not an exercise where we try and superimpose our will on God's will and try to get God to do what it is that we necessarily want him to do. But what we're trying to do is find alignment. Underneath, and that's what Abraham finds. Abraham finds alignment underneath the, uh, the purpose and the passion of what God was doing in that time, moment, place, uh, and space. And so when that becomes prayer for us, or at least part of prayer for us, what we're going to find is that a lot of times our hearts are out of alignment. So what do we do in those moments? There's another part of prayer, it's called confession. And so when our hearts are out of alignment, we confess that to God. Now, confession and forgiveness are different things, right? When you become a Christian, when you, um, when you cross the line of faith, when you step into relationship with Christ, all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You don't confess your sin to get more forgiveness from God. You've gotten all of the forgiveness that you're ever going to get and that you're ever going to need. But what confession does do is it frees you and me to live in alignment with God so we don't carry guilt because we become accountable for our sin, for our imperfections, for the times where our lives are out of alignment with God. Because my tendency, and I'm guessing your tendency, whenever you step out of alignment with God, is to want to blame somebody else, right? You ever do that? Well, I know I got angry, but I'm Scottish. I'm Italian, right? I'm Russian. Is there any like group of people like that we don't blame anger on, right? Well, I'm 
Or we tend to say, well, you know, this is my mom's fault or my dad's fault or my, and listen, certainly, certainly, maybe genetics play into your personality type. Maybe the, the way that you were raised, it has an impact on how you think about um, situations and choices. But at the end of the day, you and I are responsible for the choices that we make. So let's almost say that together, okay? We'll do, I'll just say it. I, I am, am responsible. responsible. You and I are responsible. We are accountable for the choices that we make, which is what makes confession so powerful. Because we come before this holy God, right? This God who can crack the, the seals on the scroll, the only one who is worthy, and we expect that he's just gonna hammer us. And instead, he allows us to come into his presence and say, God, this, this is what I want. This is what I see. And God, this week, I'm speaking about Dean here. This week, God, I had a very specific situation in my life where I did not believe in your goodness. How in the world could I not trust and believe that you would be good to me in the middle of this difficult situation and circumstance. And you know what that does? It allows me to be free. It allows me to cast off any guilt I've got about that. It allows me to cast off any shame that I've got about that. And it allows me to grow. I don't wanna blame that on somebody else. I wanna take ownership of that because it's good and healthy for my soul. And the longer you and I blame it on somebody else, the more difficult it becomes to grow through it and get better on the other side of it. Not to mention the reality that we want to be living in right relationship with God because we know the end of hope. Because where we're going in Revelation, we know that, we know that we're headed towards new heaven, new earth. When God restores all things, where the scriptures say, that he will wipe every tear. Not a few tears, not most of the tears, that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. If you've ever worked with children, if you have children of your own, parent, teacher, coach, mentor, you've, uh, you've been watching children and a child's running or something and they fall and they scrape their knee, soon as you hear a child cry, like you, right? You're like, Whew! and you get focused. And there's silence. As you go to that child and you scoop them up, and if they need to be cleaned up, you clean that knee up a little bit. As much as that hurts, you're going to clean that knee up and you're going to hold them and you're going to hold them and you're going to hold them until the tears are done and you're going to reach your thumb up and you're going to wipe those tears. And what John gives us is this beautiful picture that in the moments of tears and in the moments where we bump into each other and we hurt each other and different circumstances hurt us in the world and we scrape our spiritual knees, so to speak, that there's silence, that God gets really focused. What Chad said earlier is so true. He's here. God is here. Surely God is in this place. 
And he's with you. And he's holding you. Some of you have cried this week. I had a call this week from young family, used to attend our church, live in a different city now. Tragic situation in the loss uh, of the father. And I thought about that family in the context of this passage in Revelation 8, that God is holding, that God is focused, that heaven is silent as he holds. And as we look forward to a day, Not just in our suffering, but through our suffering, we see a Savior, a slain lamb who suffered for us voluntarily on a cross, giving himself for us so that we can join with him in the hymn of heaven, singing our eternal praises to the slain lamb. So maybe as I pray right now, maybe this is an opportunity for you to confess Maybe you can practice that spiritual discipline right now to live in greater levels of freedom. Let's pray together. God, we we sing this. We sing this hymn of heaven back to you because, God, we believe that what you say is true. We believe that, God, you are holding us in the middle of pain 